The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Avery Schmitz, Internet Lawfare with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for April 1st, 2023. On March 30th, Russian officials arrested Evan Gurkovich, a Moscow-based correspondent for the Wall Street Journal, on charges of espionage. Amid condemnations by the White House and a conglomeration of media outlets and press freedom advocacy groups, a Russian district court claimed Gurkovich would be held until May 29th. This detention marks the first time Russia has arrested American journalist since the end of the Cold War. To contextualize the arrest, I chose an interview from January 8, 2019. In the episode, David Priest sat down with John Seifer to discuss the history of spy swaps between the U.S. and Russia, the Russian government's arrest of American Paul Whelan in 2019, and more. I'm David Priest, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, January 8th. 2019. The Russian government's recent arrest of American Paul Whelan and its charges against him have many politicians and pundits speculating about the possibility of an intended spy swap for Maria Butina. There's a lot going on here, but there's also a lot of misunderstanding about the history of spy swaps, what they are and what they aren't. Earlier this week, I sat down with my former CIA colleague, John Seifer, to talk about it all. He joined me to discuss the history of spy swaps, the current case involving Paul Whelan, and prospects for some kind of a release. It's the Lawfare Podcast number 379, John Seifer on spy swaps, past, present, and future. We're here in the Jungle Studio with John Seifer, who retired in 2014 after a 28-year operational career in the Central Intelligence Agency including multiple overseas tours as chief of station and deputy chief of station and extensive experience on Russia operations, and retired as a member of the CIA's senior intelligence service. John is the co-founder of Spycraft Entertainment and a director of client services at Crosslead, a software and consulting firm. He not only appears regularly on the PBS NewsHour, CNN, MSNBC, and BBC to talk about espionage issues, but he's written for us at Lawfare, among other outlets. John, it's a pleasure to have you back. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Yep. We're here to talk about uh, spy swaps in the light of the arrest of Paul Whelan in Moscow and the issues surrounding that. So start out for our listeners. What, in a traditional sense, is a spy swap? (laughs) Well, the first thing I I think I guess I got to do in this case is to explain the difference between what happened a couple years ago, for example, when Russia and the United States got into a spat and threw out what they said were spies or diplomats from each side. 
as opposed to what's happening, we believe, here, where Mr. Whelan has been arrested in Moscow and there's discussion that perhaps he was arrested in order to swap him for Maria Butina, who was arrested in the United States and being held by the Justice Department. So I need to give a little bit of, I think, of a background to explain you know, how espionage works and what are the differences. So in general, when the FBI arrests a Russian engaged in espionage in the United States, for the most part, those people are working at the embassy under diplomatic cover. So they're pretending to be diplomats, but at nights and when they go to work, they're, they're, they're trying to break away from the FBI to meet American spies or agents to collect information, and occasionally they're caught. But they have diplomatic immunity because they're under the Russian embassy, and therefore they are kicked out. And when that happens, sometimes it creates a flat between the two governments, and we'll throw out more of them, or they'll throw out some Americans in the other case. That's, I think, a little bit different than what we're talking about. Because one thing the Russians do that's different than what Americans do, because Americans also you know, reportedly use diplomatic immunity overseas to as cover for their intelligence activities. One thing the Russians do differently is they have what they call illegals. So a little bit of background. You know, when the Bolshevik state started in 1917, very few countries recognized them. But the first organ of the government was was called the Cheka, which was their special services, their secret service, their intelligence service. It was very powerful. It was sort of the judge, jury, and executioner inside the country and also did operations outside. And since they knew that a lot of countries wouldn't recognize them, they created two parts of their external intelligence service, what they called a legal residency, which is what we were talking about with people in embassies doing espionage operations. They called a legal residency. And then they created what they called illegal residency. That would be people who would be pretend to be, for example, if we're talking about the United States, pretend to be Americans, have American covers, passports, backgrounds. And that would be completely separate from the embassy. So there would be an espionage organization in the embassy, and then there would be sort of this strategic reserve of people in the community that could run operations in case the people in the embassy are either under heavy surveillance or kicked out. And so what happens in these spy swaps, it's when those people are found and arrested, they don't have diplomatic immunity, they go to prison. And then in those cases, it's usually when we talk about this issue of spy swaps, because they're going to be in prison for the rest of their lives. And then the two governments begin to discuss how to get them out. Let's nail down this point on on illegals, because it's going to become important as we talk perhaps about the uh, Paul Whelan case. So is the concept of the illegals in the Russian sense a parallel to the concept of a non-official cover or a knock officer in the Western intelligence service sense? It's similar, but it's 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 much it's much more culturally um, important to the Russians because it it's sort of how they started their service. And uh, Mr. Putin spent you know his career in the KGB and takes great pride in this. In fact, there's stories now circulating. I don't I don't believe them in the Russian press that he was was involved in running illegals outside the country. I think there's a lot of stories that he was sort of a middling KGB officer. And of course, now with his power, uh, he doesn't like stories that he was unimportant. So I think he've created these stories that he was involved in the illegals program to make him look stronger. But they take great pride in this. And so the difference is, if the U.S. government is is involved in using this non-official cover, they might have an, we might have an American in the embassy who's involved in, in intelligence collection. But the non-official cover people might be an American businessman who travels into a country to do work. The Russians are different. Let me give an example. What happened in World War II, when, when the Russians attacked Finland, they took over the whole eastern part of Finland, Karelia. And the Finns essentially fled and left the, the, the Finnish churches in the background. 
the Russians went into those old Finnish churches, collected the church records, and would find records of children who died at birth. They would then take those records and then create a false persona around this child who died at birth, and then create a passport, create a fiction, give language, and then have that person maybe move to Western Europe and live as a Finn, and then eventually move that person, say, to the United States to look like a Finnish businessman or look like a Finnish citizen. Um, and they do the same with Americans and Canadians and other things. And that's how they hide from people like the FBI and counterintelligence services. Let's move this forward to spy swaps then. You're talking about most of these spy swaps in Cold War history having to do more with the illegals and others that we'll get to than to traditional intelligence officers in official cover positions. So across the wide span of time, what have the motivations been for the U.S. to engage in these swaps? Because mm -hmm. normally, we're not arresting potential spies on a whim. These are people who we have caught doing something. They're going through due process or have been through due process. Why let them go back to, in this case, the Russians? That's a very good point. And that's why we shouldn't take this notion of spy swaps easily. So the fact that this Mr. Whelan was arrested recently, there's a lot of talk about, oh, then this is part of a spy swap for Maria Butina. That's why we got to be careful. There are times in history where both governments feel that it's necessary to get themselves out of a sort of a diplomatic thing or maybe use the spy swaps to move the relationship forward in some way. You know, a good example was, you know, in the early days, there's that movie Bridge of Spies. I don't know if you've seen this movie. So a Russian illegal was was arrested in the United States. Rudolf Abel was, a, was the fake name he was using in New York, was in prison. And the Russians, obviously, the Soviets then wanted to get him out. And luckily for, for them, I guess, at some point, Francis Gary Powers, who flew the U-2, was shot down over the Soviet Union, but survived, uh, was held in Russian jails. And th the discussion between the two governments was, okay, we now have two people in prison. Is there any way we can discuss using this process to get them both out of prison and improve our relations? So the idea is that the person in jail, presumably, could reveal some secrets and we want to get them out before they do that? Or similarly on the Russian side, they want to get their person out before they break? Is that the idea? I think that's part of the idea. You know, when we get to the point of talking about spy swaps, this raises beyond just law enforcement and Justice Department things. This is, this is governments um, negotiating at a higher level. And so there hasn't been a lot of spy swaps over time. Usually when there's arrests in the espionage sphere, again, people have diplomatic immunity and they're kicked out of the country but we're not swapped you know, for other spies. It's when people are caught without diplomatic immunity and face long jail time. How much of this is also motivation to other non-official cover officers out there or illegals? That is, if it is in the news that someone has been arrested for this illegal spying activity and the government behind it does nothing to help them, doesn't that discourage other people from engaging in that profession for the host country? <laughs> I suppose that's true. In many cases, there's sort of a long history of the Soviets and the Russians using this tool to get their people out, almost like holding hostages or creating fake espionage cases so that they can arrest someone and try to push the U.S. government or put pressure on the U.S. government to do this kind of swap. A good example is, I believe in 1986, under the Reagan administration, a Russian intelligence officer was arrested in, in New York was at the UN and was meeting someone and collecting classified information. The FBI arrested him. Three days later, 
uh, U.S. News World Report journalist Nicholas Daniloff was arrested in Moscow in a clear setup. Somebody came to him, handed him an envelope. Immediately, he was arrested. The no envelope, indication he had been involved in espionage in any way. No, we've now had you know thirty years, forty years since that period of time, and and he's written a book. It's been very clear that there was a it was a setup. He was a a journalist and and. It was very easy for the Russians to hand him something and then quickly arrest him. So in that case, they had someone in jail. They were, you know, very obviously very worried about what he might say, and then quickly took a hostage to try to put pressure on the government. Right. You've had some personal experience with this. If I recall, you were working Russian operations at a time when we were watching some of the illegals in the United States, which became a public case a few years later. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it's interesting. In 2010, the U.S. government arrested 10 Russian illegals living in the United States. Uh, they were using various backgrounds, Canadian, South American, U.S., and others. What's interesting about that is they had been in the United States for quite a long time, and uh there was the Russian President Medvedev was visiting the United States. This is in 2010. And the FBI made these arrests. Uh, there was push to get Medvedev out of the country quickly before the arrest came. So it didn't, you know, embarrass the Russian government at the time. But under the Obama administration, there was there was pressure to say, hey, listen, this is a, a big diplomatic row. Is there a way we can we can solve this without making this a permanent stain on a relationship? And uh, at the time, the CIA talked to the British service as well and realized that we had several people, Russians, who had been working for us in the British in Russian prisons, and so a swap was arranged. And so in Vienna, the 10 Russian illegals who were found guilty and were put in prison were released, taken to Vienna, and traded for four Russians who had been uh, allegedly spying for the United States and for Great Britain. And what's interesting is one of those R Russians that was released was Sergei Skripal, who, as you recall, last year, the Russians tried to assassinate in, in Salisbury, England. It all seems to come back around the history uh -huh. of this, back to the Czechists uh, and even the Skripal case. That's a great foundation for looking at this new case. In a nutshell, what have the Russians done with Paul Whelan? Yeah, it's interesting. Now, there's there's not a lot of information out there, but it, it does seem to fit this same pattern. So, Paul Whelan looks to be an American former Marine. You know, if I if the press reports are right, he was was kicked out of the Marines, court-martialed um, for stealing money and various things. Seemed to have an affinity for Russia. Traveled there quite a bit. Uh, his family says he was there for a, for a wedding. What I take from the Russian side is they say he was arrested in a high class. Russian hotel, the hotel he was staying in after he had collected a thumb drive with secret documents mm -hmm. purportedly on them. It sounds a lot like the Danilov case. It? <laughs> it does. There's a lot of concern up, up front because most people don't follow espionage and they, they shouldn't, saying, oh, my goodness, um, you know, is this true? Could this person have been a, an American spy? Could he have been a knock? Uh, I'm not aware of anybody who's been involved from the U.S. side or British side in Russian operations who thinks that's even remotely possible. You know, first of all, we don't hire people who are without college educations who are fired from the Marines. And number two, this is just not how espionage is done in a place like Russia. The Russians are the best in the world at counterintelligence. They follow us everywhere. They bug our homes. They put video in our homes. They question everybody that we see. So the notion that a guy in his own hotel room would in public take a document from someone, that's just not how we do our business in Russia. And so it just doesn't make sense. So it looks like the same pattern. The Russians may have someone they want to spring out or they may want to put some sort of pressure on the U.S. government. And so they set somebody up and take this hostage. 
There's been some speculation that maybe Paul Whelan was doing some kind of espionage light, if you will, either to enhance some corporate work or perhaps working for a third country. What do you think the prospects are of that? I think that's unlikely, but I do think it's possible. You know, the, the Russians, again, like I said, are very good. So if this guy's been traveling to Russia for a long time and they've been following and watching him and listening to it, his uh, phone and such, it sounds like he was very interested in Russian military and law enforcement issues. You know, they may have seen him as sort of a naive kind of dupe that would be easy to set up, that he's someone who might uh, think that he could you know, do something special and then appeal to the United States or appeal to someone that he's he's done this great thing and has information that might help somebody or help a company. So I think it's more likely that they saw him as a mark, easy to set up and therefore set him up. You know, I don't know for sure, of course, but I'm, you know, I would say with great confidence that the U.S. intelligence community is not interested in the kind of information he was collecting. Let's move off of Wheeland himself and see the motivations of the Russians and perhaps on the U.S. side if this spy swap moves forward. Conventional wisdom from many of our former colleagues has it that this is a Russian grab to enable a swap for Maria Butina. Uh, lay out the case for that. If that is the Russian play, is this the way that you would have thought they would do it by putting something on this man and then essentially dangling him out there to try to get Maria back? I do think this is the way the Russians might want to do it. Let's, you have to remember again that President Putin grew up through the KGB. He spent his career in the KGB. He ran the Russian intelligence service, the, the internal security service, the people who make these arrests, the FSB. And then he's been the president for almost 20 years. He has wallowed and been in this world for years. He has done efforts to clandestinely film people you know, with prostitutes to try to set them up. He has been involved in all of the defections and arrests and intelligence things over the last 40 years. I think he understands how to play this game and therefore may be calculating that this is a good way to put pressure on an administration or government who doesn't have that kind of experience. And so uh, I think the, the wild card here is, is, is President Trump. You know, is this something that you know, he sees as a problem, sees himself as a great negotiator, and, and doing this kind of swap or something would be something that would be useful to the government to move past and then build a better relationship with the Russians. I think most professionals and people in previous administrations and probably in this administration other than in the White House think that's a very bad idea. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, 
that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Yeah, typically I think that that's what we'd expect, is that there would be a president seeing this action from the Russians, seeing what we have that they want. And then, as you said, it's a whole-of-government effort. DOJ, FBI, CIA, State Department, everyone gets involved in discussing, is this a, quote, spy swap worth doing? Of course, Trump is not the typical president, and the Russians as well as anyone know that. So what other explanations could there be for this other than Maria Butina? Because let's play devil's advocate. 
she's already been in jail. She served some of her time. She, it's not going to be that long before she's out anyway. So that action, maybe six months ago or a year ago, might have made more sense than now. What else could the Russians be thinking if it is not a swap for Butina? What else could they be looking at in terms of President Trump thinking, we're going to get something else out of him for this? Yeah, it's possible the Russians just want to change the calculus or make it clear that there's a price to pay when Russians are arrested in any case. There are other Russians who are in jail and prison that they may be concerned about. You remember Victor Boot, the the Russian arms merchant, is is in in prison. Mm -hmm. So there's other reasons why... Putin might want to change the calculus and and put pressure on on the government here. But if it does have to do with Maria Butina, it may suggest that she's more important than I think the public and the press has thought so far. I think a lot of people say, hey, she was a student. She was out networking. She was very open. You know, what's the big deal? But at least from a, you know, professional on our side who who are involved in these kind of espionage things, she's what we would call in our, our parlance an access agent. So, when a professional intelligence officer, say a Russian, comes to the United States, that person's job is to develop sources, develop relationships, find people who might be manipulated or be interested in working and spying and being a traitor to help the Russian side. That is not an easy thing to do. And if you're out in the in the public as a Russian diplomat, potential spy, it may be seen that way, maybe under FBI surveillance. Therefore, you need people like Maria Butina, who are sort of your the overt face of the covert war, if you will. She's out meeting lots of people. She's assessing them. She's learning what makes them tick, you know, you know, who is sleazy, who might have peccadilloes, all these kind of things that she can then report back to the Russians to help them target and decide who to go after. So of that large group of people she meets, based on what she reports to them, it may help them aim and go after someone that they think might work for them. And if I understand what you're saying, you're saying an access agent is not necessarily as valuable to get back because they've just been spotting and assessing potential contacts for the operations officers to come in and actually recruit and get information from. They're not as valuable unless and until they actually focus on a specific person that the Russians then are going to go after. And, and I, you know, I'm, I'm speaking a little bit further than what I know here is mm-hmm. this notion of this Mr. Erickson that she'd been working on. It's possible that the Russians took interest in him and then for continued to use her to find more and more information and maybe even help set up a meeting for a Russian to meet him. And so in that case, the Russians would be nervous because uh, she may be more aware of of the specific people that the Russians would be going after. But now, mm-hmm. now I don't know. But if Mr. Whelan was was arrested so that they could swap Miss Butina, it suggests that there's something that's of concern to the Russians. Right. Let's play the opposite card. Let's say that it's not her because there is not such a valuable thing that she still has that she has not talked about. Do you think the Russians would be more likely to have come to the Americans through some channels and said, we have this guy, we know you want him back, here's what we want in return? Or would they be more likely to say, we've arrested this man on espionage charges, we've actually indicted him now, and then leave it up to Trump, knowing how he tends to react, how he tends not to do things through long processes of National Security Council meetings, but often just based on gut instinct, and put it out there to see if Trump in fact, gives up more than the Russians would have dared to ask in the first place? That's an interesting question, and both of those things are possible. In the past, and having been in Moscow, the Russians very much, when these type of things happen in the United States, arrests and stuff, they often immediately come to us because we have a, we have an intelligence relationship. So, you know, we have people in Moscow who meet regularly with the Russian services, and 
over the decades, they've all come and said, listen, we need to solve these problems quietly, service to service. You know, this is where these discussions should be happening, not in the public, not you know, these type of things. So generally, when something like this happens, they might come to our, our service or come to our, someone in our U.S. embassy and try to solve these problems quietly. But in this case, it's certainly possible they've had now you know, more than two years to look at Mr. Trump and see how he operates. And perhaps if you believe the collusion or they've been targeting for years and years, much longer an assessment of his personality. And it's certainly worth, you know, I would think if I was Mr. Putin, you know, it's certainly worth a try. There's not a lot to lose. If this guy was dumb enough to do something, real and dumb enough to do something and get himself caught in Russia, it's an easy thing to use and give it a shot to see if Mr. Trump, you know, miscalculates and would that not suggest a danger for other Americans in Russia going forward? If the Russians see this as a, a gambit and it works at some level, what is to stop them from doing it again and again, knowing that this administration might respond? <laughs> there was an excellent quote I saw in, in a thing written by Mike Sulik, the former head of the clandestine service. This morning, it was a quote from Daniel Shore, hmm. famous correspondent, who said, quote, when a democracy plays the Soviet game of exchanging the guilty for the innocent, it buys trouble for the future. As with terrorists, you may only be encouraging them to do it again. So I think that's what you're suggesting. And one of the things that makes that even easier, this this obviously happened throughout the Cold War. But in 2012 and 2013, under Mr. Putin, the Russians changed their espionage law to even make it easier to arrest people on flimsy charges. Anybody who is considered, quote, a foreign agent or anybody who is doing anything that in any way, under Russian definition, is in interfering in the Russian state, can be arrested for espionage. This has been a big problem for a lot of NGOs. The United States uh, AID has left the country because of this. Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, others have pulled back, have, have considered leaving the country because essentially under the law, anybody talking to any Russian can be arrested for espionage and potentially spend 20 years in jail, even if it doesn't fit the common sense definition of espionage. And yet in the waning years of the Obama administration, when tensions were very high, and you've read about some of the things they were doing to Ambassador McFaul and others there, we did not have a, a wave of arrests. Is it because most of those groups left so that they wouldn't be arrested? I think, I think a lot of them did leave so they wouldn't be arrested. I think a lot of people that do work in Russia have to calculate you know, the risks that they face it's a hard place if you're working on international issues in a place like Moscow, mm -hmm. dealing with somebody like Putin who can choose at any time to do this. In fact, you know, when I was in Russia in the 90s, one of the things we used to say is the way the, the Russian business laws were so lax that any business, any businessman could be arrested at any time because if a business followed the law, there's no possible way to make money because you know, there were so many laws and they were so overlapping and so confusing, but this was very powerful for the state. So since if everybody's potentially guilty and you can choose when to take them, everybody wants to play the game and not upset the state. And that gives them tremendous power. It's the same on this sort of international stages. Yeah, most things go by fine. Most people do okay. But if the state then chooses to arrest someone, they almost can do it at a whim. There are many journalists and many lawyers and others, Americans, who have to travel to Russia for their work. It's part of their job. Short of not accepting a thumb drive from a stranger <laughs> in, a, in a luxury hotel, what would you advise them to avoid scrutiny, assuming, of course, that they are not spies? I think anyone that, that goes to a place like Russia and maybe even China or 
Cuba or other places, has to be aware of the the breadth, skill, and relentlessness of the counterintelligence and security services. So, you know, it is it's routine to listen to and video hotel rooms. It's routine to pay attention to foreigners, to question people who the foreigner talks to. They may not use that immediately. They may wait uh, and use it later. They may put together pieces. But you need to be savvy enough to know that the Russians you're meeting, you're potentially putting them at risk if you're asking them to do anything that they could be charged with under this 2012 espionage law. Again, you know, most work goes through fine. Most people visit Moscow and have a grand time, and it's an interesting place and fascinating place to be. But you have to understand, as long as Vladimir Putin's in power, he knows how to play these espionage games, and they're always collecting information. They're always putting it together so that when they choose to act, they can. Mm-hmm. We've talked about this mostly in the U.S.-Russian context, or going back the U.S.-Soviet context. But how often has a thing like a spy swap been an international thing? Does this happen with other countries, or is it largely an artifact of that Cold War relationship? That's an interesting question. I don't have as much background on it being used. In in fact, very little comes to my mind in terms of Mm -hmm. spy swaps with with other places. Uh, There's been you know, spy flaps and problems and people, you know, asked quietly to leave countries. But it's not usually a case of people in jail who are released. I mean, during the Cold War, this was part of, you know, the symmetry and the sort of way that problems were solved, you know, around the edges. But this tends to be a Russian thing in many ways because, you know, the, the Russian state in many ways is a sort of a super security service intelligence state. You know, the Czechist KGB sword and shield mentality has continued on. We saw it in 2016. You know, they had GRU people trying to assassinate people around the world. They're using, you know, they're doing covert things in the United States, trolls, bots, using social media, you know, espionage efforts, you know, stealing the DNC emails. It's, It's Mr. Putin, as long as he's in power, is going to see the intelligence services as a really important tool for foreign policy. You worked largely in operations at CIA. I worked largely in analysis at CIA. And what we did is we looked at all of that stuff you're talking about and tried to paint the picture of what's going on, what's the same or what's different in this case, Russian policy. You see an uptick in recent years of the propaganda, the information warfare. You see the actions against Skripal in in the UK. Maybe now perhaps this, this arrest of Whelan putting all that together, it looks like there are a lot of things going on that may have borrowed upon past practices, but seem to be either ramping up in volume or expanding in scope. What does that tell you? Does that tell you we're reverting back to an early Cold War mentality? Or does that tell you there's something different going on here that we need to watch out in the future, that the dynamic is changing and we're not prepared for it? Well, if there's a lot, lot there. I do think you know, Mr. Putin and the Russians have made it clear that they see us as the enemy. We're the main enemy. They attacked our system in 2016. And when someone tells you they're enemy, you should listen to them. So a lot of people say, oh, my God, are we going back to the Cold War? I don't know if we're going back to the Cold War, but when someone is attacking us, we have to realize that they see us as the enemy and we have to we have to react. There's things about 2016 and up through 2018 that make it a little bit different, but I would contend that this is very similar and very much what the Russians have been doing for a long time. Now, certainly, 
the impact of social media allows them to weaponize this disinformation and this deception and these fake news and all these things more than they could in the past. You know, through the Cold War, they could create these fictions like the United States created the AIDS virus, that the United States was selling, you know, baby parts in Latin America, that, you know, the United States was planning to assassinate various leaders. This is a nonstop thing the Russians had been doing. But I think after 2001, we we really turned to look at terrorism and focused so much on terrorism, we stopped looking and thinking that the Russians, they, we thought that they were perhaps with us on this concern about Islamic terrorism. They certainly have a problem with Islamic terrorism, but they never change from looking at us as the main enemy. So I don't, I don't think there's a big change in how they do business and who they've seen as their main enemy. But I do think there are things that it, it's worth us now re-looking at the history and looking at what they're doing and, and trying to look at it without shades over our eyes. In that context, I'm going to ask you to speculate a little bit here. What do you think is most likely to happen with this Whelan case? How is it most likely to play out and what variables does that depend on? Uh, so you're an analyst. So you, your job is to sort of tell policymakers what, what to look forward to. That's a tough one because we're dealing with Mr. Trump. And I don't think people that work with him day to day can predict what he's thinking well, or let, how he might react. Let's go back half react. a step then. Let's say that there is no President Trump. Let's say that it is a normally functioning national security process with policy coordination meetings and deputies committees and principals committees and the FBI weighing in. How would it play out in a normal administration and then play in that variable of this president? Okay. Um, I think what would normally happen in this kind of case is the Justice Department would make clear you know, what they're trying to do with Miss Butina and other things and how important it is for them to, to keep her on based on cases they're making. The intelligence agencies and the State Department and others would put forward our relationship with Russia, what they think this means, and we would sort of take it all on board. I think we would do what we often do, like we've seen when an American is arrested, say, in Iran or Turkey or Korea or any of these kind of places we've seen recently, is we put pressure on that government if we think it's illegal or, or wrong to release that person. We don't say hey, you've arrested this person. Let's give you a gift to, to let them out. And, and that, so I think- that plays to comments from people like Secretary Pompeo, who said, if it turns out he was doing something inappropriate, which doesn't sound like the normal response from the US government when an American citizen with no apparent connection to spying is arrested for spying. Yeah, I was a little surprised by that. And I think others were too. Yeah, I'm not sure whether that means that that the administration wasn't prepared and didn't wasn't organized enough to have told him in time that this- this had nothing to do with, with U.S. intelligence. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if he thought that maybe this person was freelancing and doing it on something their own that, you know, the Russians would consider illegal even if it has nothing to do with U.S. intelligence. Um, but that is an unusual, an unusual statement. Usually it's made clear that, hey, you know, we are not getting clear information from you. You have appeared to arrest an American citizen without providing us specific information on what they've been arrested for. And this is unacceptable and they need to be released. Mm -hmm. So in that case, I think in a normal case, we would be putting pressure on the Russians. Now, to be fair, Mr. Trump hasn't said anything about this. Um, you can look at that in a bad way because he says things about all other stuff and when it has to do with the Russians. Or, you know, he may be you know, ready to come out with something we're, we're totally unprepared for. But, you know, you know I'll, I'll give the administration at least the opportunity to be handling this the proper way, you know, not looking for spy swaps or to give the Russians something. But it is a worry, obviously, with, with President Trump because we just don't know how he reacts. Based on what you know, and we'll put out there that there's a lot of unknowns here, based on what you know about the Butina case, about the Whelan case, 
you're the president of the United States, or even better, you're the CIA director advising the president <laughs> of the United States. <laughs> what do you advise? Do you think that this is a, a trade to get an American out of what is probably not comfortable conditions in Moscow? Or because this is such a trumped up case, do you think that this is one where the United States simply holds firm and says, we're not swapping for this because that's just inherently wrong, going with the logic that Mike Sulik laid out that you read to us earlier? Right. I think that's what you do. I think you put pressure on the Russians um, to make it clear this is unacceptable and there will be consequences if you arrest Americans without good cause. Yeah, If you can provide us information that makes us believe that there's something there and the person was arrested uh, properly, then we will put it in normal diplomatic channels to deal with this back and forth like we do with all these type of things. There's Americans that are arrested in Russia quite all the time and other countries as well. And these things are dealt with at the consular level between embassies. The notion of doing a, sp a swap at this point, I think, is way too early. And let's hope the administration understands that. John, thanks for coming in and joining us to talk about the history of spy swaps and mm. what's likely to happen in this case. Oh, geez. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Thanks this week to John Seifer for coming on the show. If you've shared the Lawfare Podcast on social media or rated us on your site of choice, we're grateful. And we encourage those of you who have not done so to take a moment to help us out. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by Jen Pacha Howell. And our music, as always, is performed by Sophia Yan. Until next time, thanks for listening.